morning. Good morning. So good to see everybody. Man, thanks for making it out and uh, coming to church. I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Joe. I'm an associate pastor here at Real Life. And uh, we got uh, one more week. Uh, Justin's uh, out of town. And so you got me uh, today. And I'm excited because I haven't been up here in a while to, to teach. It's been a minute. So um, I'm excited to share with you uh, our series this morning as we get into experiencing God. And um, I want to recap a little bit. We've been going through this series. Some of you uh, that are in home groups, maybe you've been having these conversations. Maybe you got the workbook. We hope you've been following along and doing this. But we're just talking about what it means to experience God and what that looks like in our lives and how we can have a greater experience with God. So there are these principles and these things that we've been talking about each week. And we started out talking about the reality that God is always at work. And so that's important reality to, to recognize that God is always at work. Uh, he's doing something. He's moving in people's lives and scenarios and circumstances to advance his kingdom. And so that's a reality that we have to understand that if we, if we want to experience God, we've got to believe that, that he's actually at work uh, on this earth. Uh, the, another reality is that uh, uh, he wants a relationship with us. The God, the God of the universe actually wants to hang out with us. That's a pretty cool deal. And, uh, and so we learn that through scripture that God relentlessly pursues us because he loves us and he wants a relationship with us. And then on top of that, he actually wants to partner with us. So the work that he's up to, his kingdom uh, restoration, um, he wants us to be a part of that. And so he partners with us um, as we go along in life. And so for those realities to exist, that uh, God's always at work, that he uh, desires to have a relationship with us and he wants to partner with us, then we got to ask us, then we got to hear his voice, right? He's, he's got to share with us how we can actually partner with him. And so we believe that God speaks. And last week, Joel did a great job introducing this topic of God speaks. And he shared about how God speaks through the Bible and he shared about how God speaks through prayer. And he introduced this topic, and I'm going to continue on kind of a part two on God Speaks about what this looks like when God speaks to us through circumstances in our lives, um, the things that we go through, as well as how God speaks to us through his church. And so we're going to look at a couple of those uh, examples and what that looks like in, uh, in our lives. And then I'm going to end with um, the, the one that might, uh, might be more of a reality for most of us of what happens when God is silent. Right? What happens when God's silent? But we'll get there at the end. So I want to I want to get get going here. I got a lot of content we're going to move through uh, this morning, and I'm really excited to to share with you. Um, and I feel bad for uh, Carlos and Taylor up there in the booth because uh, Carlos has got to keep up with my pacing on the stage, and Taylor's got to keep up with me moving through the slides. So we're going to get right through this. Uh, let's talk about circumstances. Let's talk about circumstances in our life. So for us to really understand how God moves through the circumstances in our lives, we really have to put our trust in the idea that God's at work, that God is at work on this earth. Because if you don't believe that God is doing something, if you think that God is indifferent, that he doesn't care, that he's not involved in your activities, it's really going to be hard for you to see how God might be active in the different circumstances in your life. But if you actually do believe that God is at work, and I want to invite you into that trust um, that God is at work, then we can begin to conclude that if God is at work on this earth, if he's actually doing something, then it would make sense that he would use the circumstances in my life to actually speak to me. 
because he's involved in doing something. And so when we look at circumstances in our lives um, and how God may speak to us through those circumstances, um, a great example of this is found in Genesis chapter 28. But to get to Genesis chapter 28, we've got to jump back to Genesis chapter 25. And it's all about this guy named Jacob. How many of you heard the name Jacob before, right? Few of you. Okay, if you've been in church, you know the name. He's a patriarch, right? He was, he, his sons were the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and so God used him to, to uh, begin this movement of the people of Israel to, um, to bless the earth as, as the original promise came in through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But we get introduced to Jacob first by an angel that visited visits his mom. His, mo- his mom has a visit from an angel, and this is in Genesis chapter 25. And so what you're going to get from me is you're going to get the J-E-V version. This is the Joe English version, okay? So there's a lot of paraphrasing here, but it's in there. 25 to 35, roughly 10 chapters I'm going to cover here in the next few minutes. So stay with me. Here we go. The mom uh, gets a, Rebecca gets a visit from an angel, and the angel tells mom you're going to have twins, And these twins are going to turn into two great nations, but they're going to be at odds against each other. But the younger will rule over the older. And so that's the vision that that the mom gets. And so then she she gets pregnant, she has twins, and and this is sitting in the back of her mind. The angel said that these are going to turn into two great nations, they're going to be odds at each other, but the younger will rule over the older. And so she gives birth, and first comes out Esau. Esau, we're told in, in, in the story, that he's covered in hair. Some of the translations say it's like a coat of hair, right? This is not the kind of, you're not sending out postcards after this one, right? This birth. No, um... But he's like, I don't even know what that looks like, right? I don't, my kids were like bald, right? And so I don't know. But this is what the story tells us. He comes out. And then right after Esau comes out, um, um, Jacob comes out right after. And Jacob's holding on to the heel, under the, under the foot of Esau as, as Esau comes out. And so already in the narrative, we're getting this indication that there's tension. There, there's this kind of, this thing that's happening between brothers here. That Esau's born, but Jacob comes out holding on to the heel right so already in our minds we get okay this is starting to come to pass and then what happens is that later on in the story we they they get older they they start growing up and we get these interesting depictions of what what kind of people they're turning into because we're told that Esau is like a, a big time outdoorsman hunter type he's out there you know catching big game like do we have any big game hunters out here right no because they're all hunting right now right no no, they're out hunting, and, and Justin's out hunting, and we're hoping he gets, he catches the animal that he's, I don't even know what he's doing out there, but he loves it, and it's cool. He's like the Esau, and we got the Esau's in the room, Zach, you know, you like the Esau, they're the guys that want to be outdoors and hunting and, and doing these things, and then what's awesome is that you get the depiction of Jacob, and Jacob, we're told, is he's different than Esau. He likes to be at home in the tents and cook, and I'm like, that's my people right there. We call that indoorsy. Indoorsy is what is what Jacob is, and uh, so you get these two character like profiles. That one's out there, you know, big and hunting and all these things. The other one's, you know, back at home and he's cooking. He's a great cook. And so the story that we're told about this is that Esau had been out hunting, and um, and he'd been out there, and he and he comes home and he's he's starving. He's famished. He's so hungry. And there's Jacob at home, right, indoorsy, but he's cooking. He has this big old uh, pot of stew that he's been cooking up and it just smells delicious. And Esau comes in and he's like, man, that smells great. I would love, I would love to have some of that stew. And so he goes to Jacob and he's like, oh, give me that. I'm so starving, I'm famished, you give me some. And Jacob goes, well, I'll give you some if you give me your birthright. 
And we're like, what? Like, that's kind of, like, what are you doing, Jacob, right? So he's like, give me your birthright, and I'll give you some of the stew. And Esau's like, man, I'm, I'm just hungry. Just give me some of the stew. He says, I'll give you some of my stew if you give me your birthright, if you sell me your birthright. And finally, Esau relents, and he goes, fine, whatever. Take it. I don't care. And he gets the stew, and he eats. And so right out of the gate, we're introduced to this, this story that seems kind of like, why would Jacob do this? Why would Jacob? And we're not really told why Jacob, um, um, you know, re- refused to give his brother some food when he's hungry after he just came home from a big hunt. Like, duh, why wouldn't he? Well, I wonder if it's a little bit of that promise that's sitting back in, in uh, that was told to Rebecca. And maybe at some point, Rebecca had told her son, like, hey, there's going to come a day where you're going you're gonna to rule over your, your brother. You know, I, got, I had this angel visit me, and he told me these things. And so maybe playing in the back of his mind, Jacob is kind of trying to, you know, enact this promise and, and this kind of like, hey, I need to be the one that's in charge here. And so he's doing these things. Later on, we get it even further in the story. And this is the famous story of where uh, Jacob robs um, uh, the blessing from Esau. So at this point in the story, Isaac, dad, he's getting old. He's getting blind. He, like, realizes his time is short. And so he's like, he says, hey, uh, we need to bring Esau in because uh, I need to bless him. I need to, I need to pass on the blessing because I'm going to die soon. And so mom hears this, that Esau's about to get the blessing. And she goes to Jacob and says, hey, we got to go get that blessing before she gives it to Esau because it's meant for you. So you, we got to go get it. So they, they concoct this whole plan, this crazy plan. I mean, it's wild. You read the story there, and, and they, they make the food that the dad likes, and they make it just the way that Esau would have made it. And then they even go as far, because he's blind, to trick dad by putting goat hair on Jacob's arm. So if dad reached out and touched Jacob, he would feel the hair on, on, on the arm and think that it was Esau. Like crazy lengths to, de- to deceive dad and to rob the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau. And so this was a big, big deal. And what's interesting about this story is that when you read it again, you, you, yeah, if, you're, if you're watching, there are three times that Isaac challenges whether or not this is Esau. Three times. And so Jacob had three opportunities to come clean. Three opportunities to go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's me, Dad. Oh, this was dumb. I mean, it was all Mom's idea. I'd like, I'd, I was just going along. She told me to come in here. Like, I'm sorry. Three times he had an opportunity to back out, but he doesn't. He goes through with it. And so he gets the blessing from dad, which was a big deal. I mean, this was supposed to go to the firstborn son. This was, this was a big moment. So he has the birthright, and now he takes the blessing. Right after he gets the blessing from dad, they hear the Esau's coming home. And so they take off. They, like, they bail out of the tent. Esau comes home. He prepares the meal like he said he was going to do. He takes it into dad. He says, hey, dad, I'm here. I'm here to get the blessing. And Jacob's like, or Isaac's like, wait a minute. I no, I already gave the blessing. Who are you? And at that moment, Esau realizes what had happened, and he's livid. And if we're following along in the story, and if we're honest, we're livid too. Because we're going like, Jacob, why would, what is going on here? You just totally robbed your brother. Like, what's going on here? And so there, there's this thing, and, he, and he's so mad, and he's so angry, he says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And we're probably like, is it reading the narrative? Like, yeah, that, that's a big deal. And so he's so mad, he says, I'm going to kill him. Mom hears this. And it's like a soap opera, right? It's like something you see on TV. Mom hears this, and she goes to Jacob and says, you got to get out of here. You got to get out of here because your brother's going to kill you. So they pack his things, and mom says, go to my brother. 
my brother, he lives over there, just you know, down the street. Go, go see my brother, and when, when, you're, when your brother Esau cools off and this thing path blows over, I'll call you back. So he takes off. He's on the run. And while he's on the run, chapter 28 is what we get to. While he's on the run, he stops and, and he takes a nap on the road. And we get the story that's the famous Jacob's Ladder where he has a vision. And in the vision, he, he sees this ladder, like I think of like an escalator, of like going up to the heavens and down. And at the top is the escalator is God. He's sitting on the throne and coming up and down the escalator, the ladder are the angels and they're moving on the earth and in God's space and then his space and back and forth and back and forth. And God speaks out to him in this dream and he says, okay, now I'm going to, you're going to carry on what I started back in Genesis 12. You're, through your family, I'm going to bless the nations. And so he, he, he continues on the promise that he started with Abraham through Jacob in this, in, in this dream. And he wakes up from the dream and he makes this statement. And this is the most profound statement. He wakes up and he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't even know it. Surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it. And it's in this moment that a paradigm shift happens with Jacob because he recognizes that God was at work on the earth, and he didn't even have an ability to recognize it. He knew the promise of God. He knew that God had said, hey, you're gonna, you know, your younger will rule over the, the older. But, but Jacob had to take it into his own hands. Maybe he was afraid that that wasn't gonna come true. Maybe when mom heard that Esau was gonna get the blessing, she freaked out and said, no, 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 that's not what the angel said. So we have to do something. And it was in this moment that Jacob realizes that God was at work and he didn't have to take it into his own hands. He didn't have to because God was at work. And how many of us are like that, right? We know something to be true about God, but then we get nervous and we want to take it into our own hands. Like, oh, maybe I better fix this now because like, oh, God doesn't seem to be doing anything. So I got I to gotta make this happen. And this is what's happening in the story previous to this moment. Jacob is making it happen. He's taking it for himself. He's trying to make it happen on his own. And it wasn't until the dream that he realized, oh my gosh, God has been at work this whole time. And I didn't even know. I didn't even see it. I didn't even see it. And this changes a paradigm shift for Jacob because in the next few stories we read, we, we read about a very different Jacob. The next story is this crazy story about how he goes to his uncle's house and then he finds his wife over there and uh, he wants to marry her and he tells the dad, he says, hey, I want to marry this lady. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll let you marry if you work for me for seven years. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So he works for seven years, right? What an arrangement. And uh, the seven years goes by and he's, and he's getting married, but then he gets tricked by the dad and the dad gives the older daughter instead of the one he wanted in marriage, right? Crazy times, right? Bible's wild, wild stories. And so he, he gets tricked into marrying the older daughter. And he's, and he's upset. He's like, wait a minute, what, this wasn't the deal we made. And, and the dad's like, well, if you work for me another seven years, like, I'll let you marry the one that you wanted. And the old Jacob probably would have done something deceived, cheated, stole, whatever he needed to do to get it his way. But in this one, he says, no, okay, I'll work seven years. It's a different a different Jacob. All of a sudden, he's being patient. All of a sudden, he's not, he's not taking it into his own hands. He just goes, okay, I'll work another seven years. What we find out in the story is he works another seven years, finally gets the wife that he wanted, and then continues to work another six years. He works 20 years 
for his uncle. 20 years for his uncle. Then he goes home. Uh, he goes home, and on his way home, he's about to meet up with Esau. This is the first time he'd seen him in 20 years. And he doesn't know if Esau's still going to kill him. He, just, he doesn't know if Esau's still ticked at him. He hasn't heard anything. So he sends his family ahead of him. We're like, okay, that's real cool, right? He's trying to buffer. He's trying to give a buffer. And he's all by himself. And while he's by himself, the night before he's supposed to go see his brother for the first time in 20 years, he doesn't know if he's going to kill him or not when he sees him. An angel shows up, and he starts to wrestle with this angel. And I'm like, who started it? I have no idea. But they're wrestling, right? And we're like, okay, that's what you do, I guess. He's wrestling. And they're wrestling all night long. All night long, they're wrestling. And, the, and, and dawn starts to come up, and the, and, and the day begins to start, and the angel says, let me go. And Jacob does something he wouldn't have done in the past. He said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Something's changed in Jacob. In the past, if Jacob wanted something, he would take it. The birthright, the blessing. Now he's saying, I don't even want to move forward without your blessing, God. I would rather wait here until you bless me. A perspective has changed in Jacob from that moment. He began to see things in a brand new way. Surely the Lord is at work, and I didn't even know it. He had a perspective change. And you see, and our perspective matters. When we're talking about circumstances in our lives, the way that we see our circumstances, our perspective absolutely matters. It's so important. You see, in drawing, in art, there's a, there's a way that you draw using perspective. And there's, there's a, a, a one way you can use perspective. It's called one-point perspective, and it looks like this. One-point perspective is where you just basically see what's in front of you. It's like this linear, like, right in front of you. That's all we see. We don't see anything else but just what's in front of you. And that's how most of us live our lives. Most of us live in one-point perspective. We're just going day to day, and, and if something happens to us in front of us, we, we act and we react, and, and we just live that way. We just can only deal with what's in front of us because we can't see anything else. When we're at our best— we sometimes can move to two-point perspective. And two-point perspective looks like this, where you can actually see maybe the other side. You do see your one side, but you can see the other side. When I'm at my best in my marriage, I have two-point perspective because I go, oh, I see, Jane, how this upset you, right? I can see this other side. When I'm at my worst, I'm living one-point perspective in my marriage, right? Because all I see is what's in front of me. So when we're at our best, which doesn't happen all the time, we may be able to see two-point perspective. But most of us live in one-point perspective. Then there's God. And how does God see the world? He, like, he jumps levels above because there's a thing called five-point perspective. And it looks like this. And I wonder, I know it's not a perfect analogy, but this is how God sees things. He sees, he sees this over. He sees the beginning and the end and the side and the back and the front and, and all the different elements that get worked into what we're dealing with, the circumstances we have. He has five-point perspective. And the challenge that we have when we're going through circumstances in our lives is to ask God for his perspective. Because as long as we're living in one-point perspective, we're going to be frustrated and, and, and feel lost and, and, and live with uncertainty. So the best we can do is, is to go, God, give me five-point perspective. Help me to see where you're at work in this scenario, whether good or bad. Because listen, life throws at us all different types of circumstances. There are seasons in your life where things are going to be good. And there are seasons in your life that, that things are going to be bad. And when I talk to people, like, oh, life is good right now. I'm like, well, give it a day, right? Like, you don't know, right? Give it a day. Because we just, this is the rhythm, right? And if God's at work through all of it, 
Our, our goal isn't to level life in the sense of saying, it's just got to be perfectly flat and just nothing ever happened ever. No, that's not life. That's not reality. The goal, though, is to say, God, give me your perspective in the midst of it. How can I see things the way you see things? So I don't run the risk of being a Jacob and taking it in my own hands because I'm scared or I'm worried or I'm afraid. And so I got to deal with it on my own. No, if we had God's perspective, maybe we could see what he's up to. And God uses these things in our lives to help us see what's important to him and to speak to our lives. I shared this story in first service, and um, I'm going to share it again, but it might require us to just go a little bit longer in my sermon, so I, ho I hope that's okay. But, um, I mean, you don't get to try. You can get up and walk out if you want, but I'm, I'm here, and I'm going to keep talking. So, um, um, you know, most of you, some of you have heard my story. Um, I've shared bits and pieces of my story uh, uh, from the stage in the past, but uh, I want to recap and, and share with you something that, that maybe I've not shared um, up here before uh, about my story, and not just my story, Jane's story too. Um, but, uh, um, you know, when I was 17 years old, I got, I got radically called in, in, into ministry and into, into pastoral work, like like a God spoke very clearly to me, like, this is what you need to be doing. Like, this, and like, walking alongside people, and like, talking about the Bible. Like, if I could, you know, if I could have a job talking about the Bible all the time, like, that's my dream job, and, and I'm here doing that, and that's amazing. And so I pursued that from 17 years old. I pursued that. I got the opportunity in the year 2000, June of 2000. Uh, I was 21 years old, and I, and I went and worked for a church, um, and, and I did that, and I was in it, and I was loving it. And then Jane and I started our own church, and we did that for, you know, 10 plus years, however long it was. We did that for a long time and we were in it. And there got to a point in my life, and I won't go to all the circumstances why, but I, but I quit. I stepped away. I got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore and I had to make a change. And so I stepped away from ministry. I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I quit. And I quit. Now, I quit the ministry and I had a backup plan. Because at the time, I was bivocational, which means I worked full-time and I pastored full-time for, for a season. And, and so I had a job, and I, was, and I was doing really good at my job. I was, a really, I was really good, and I was making really good money. So it was like I stepped away from ministry, but I knew I had this. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to move into this area of my life, and it's going to be great, and I'm making lots of money, and we're going to be great, and life is going to be good. Three months later, I get laid off. I get laid off. So now I don't have my purpose, what I believe God called me to do, and I don't have a job that can provide for my family. On top of that, if any of you have ever lost a significant amount of income, it really affects your debt-to-income ratio. And all of a sudden, I can't pay the bills. We can't do the things that, that, that we had grown into in our style, you know, way of living. It, it just got all messed up. And so then shortly thereafter, Jane and I had to file for bankruptcy. And we went through full chapter 7 bankruptcy because we had to hit a reset. So in a matter of six months, I'd lost my purpose and calling. I'd quit that. I'd lost a job that I thought was going to provide for my family. And we were in the middle of bankruptcy. And the whole time I'm going, what in the heck is going on, God? Where are you at? Like, I went through such deep depression for, for basically a year. I was, it was just depression. Because I'd lost everything. Everything. 
Now, luckily, there came a point where my wonderful, beautiful wife said, okay, Joe, we're not, going, we're not the kind of people that don't go to church. Let's go find a church. Like, you're right, you know. We're, we didn't give up on God, it's like, but we need to go find a place to get paid. And we found this wonderful, amazing church called Real Life Ministries. We started attending and then started getting involved, started doing things. And um, as time went on, I got a new job, and it wasn't the kind of job, the high-paying, big big wig job that I had before. It was this like ground level, you know, where you go just to get a paycheck type of a job, right? That's, that's what I, I had to make money. I had to do something. So I was making a job. Uh, and, and it wasn't long after that, that um, uh, after coming to real life, getting involved at real life, that Justin took me to lunch and he said, Joe, I'd like you to come on staff. Now, if this was the Joe, you know, a few years earlier, making big money, and live in our lifestyle, there's no way I could have said yes to this job. It took God completely breaking me and wiping my slate clean for him to go, now I can finally use you, you big dummy. I, that calling on when you were 17 didn't change. You did. That thing I wanted you to do never changed. You went off. You pursued your things. You got yourself in situations financially that you couldn't dig yourself out of. I had to wipe everything off your plate just so I could get you back to this moment. And I look back at that now, and I go, wow. God, that was so hard. But you were speaking to me, and you were with me the whole way. The whole way. And you see, when we go through situations like this, and many of you have your own stories like that, when you go through things like this, it's so important that you write them down, that you begin to journal. We've been talking about journaling a few different times. You, you need to journal. You need to write these things down. What did Jacob do when he woke up from the vision? He did what, what you find a lot, this rhythm in, in the people of God, that whenever they have a, a big experience, they make a monument or an altar to remember. And so we get this, this story that, that Jacob, he comes out of this moment, and it says in verse 18 through 19 in 28, the next morning Jacob got up very early, he took some stones, he rested his head against, he set it upright as a memorial pillar. Then he poured olive oil over it. He named the place Bethel, which means house of God. He, he, he made a marker of remembrance, and that's what journaling is. Because I'm going to tell you this right now, just like there are seasons of life, up and down, up and down. You're going you're gonna to go through a down, you're going to come out of that. When you're in your up, you're going to look back and go, oh my God gosh, God, you were doing da-da-da-da, and I, you were in this place. I didn't even see it. You were working. You were trying to speak to me. You were trying to get my time. I didn't even see it, right? You write it down because guess what? That next low you go through, you're going to need that journal to look back and remember. You're going to need it to look back and go, I, you, you feel alone. You feel in despair, but you can go back to your journal. I have journals I can go back to 20 years and go, whoa, this is what God was doing. That's right, God. Whew. Okay, I can make it through it because I went through this. I went through this. You need to journal it. You need to record it. God speaks through our circumstances. He's trying to teach us things. He's trying to show us things. We just got to have the perspective to see it. You with me? Another Next thing that, that, that God does, um, he speaks through his church. Now, I say this, and I recognize that when I say God speaks through the church, that might be triggering 
for some of you because you have had horrific experiences of the church speaking to you. You've had moments of abuse or an abuse of power or someone had said something that they said was of God but wasn't of God. And so when I say that God speaks through the church, through the church there's sometimes a resistance to go, oh, I don't like that because I've seen the abuse of it. And listen, this became so real to me even in a new powerful way just a couple of weeks ago. You see, my mom um, will not step in a church ever again. Will not step in the church ever again. Refuses to. And growing up, when I became a Christian and, and started going to church, and I'm trying to invite her, she's like, nope, nope, nope. And I would say, well, what happened, mom? Why won't you do this? And she would have said, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. You keep your faith to you. I don't want to talk about it. My whole child, I don't want to talk about it. Young adult, I don't want to talk about it. Adult, I don't want to talk about it. Two weeks ago, this is the first time she ever told us why. And Jane and I were sitting and talking to her. We went and visited her in Salt Lake. And my mom uh, and dad di divorced, uh, separated when, when I was really young. Uh, my dad left, left her. And when my mom went to the church to talk to someone about it to get help, the leader in the church told her that my dad left because she wasn't a good enough wife. And she won't sit back in the church. So I understand that it can be triggering because there's so much abuse that we see sometimes. But this is what I follow up with when people talk about church hurt. And they talk about church pain and it's triggering because of an abuse that they've experienced or witnessed. I always try to remind people that we don't judge a religion by its abuse. We judge it by what it claims. Which is to say we don't judge Jesus by the abuse in his name. We judge Jesus by what he said. And you can learn about that in the four biographies written about him in your New Testament. We judge Jesus by what he said. right? Because there's abuse all over the place. But no matter what the abuse that is there, that doesn't diminish the fact that God still uses it. Okay? So we have to recognize that. Yeah, there's abuse, but that doesn't mean that God's not using people, the church, to speak in our lives. So how, how is it that God uses the church to speak in our lives? There's, there's three points I want to pull out of this, and we're going to move through this a little bit quickly. Um, how does God speak through the church? One is through acts of service. Acts of service is a way that God can speak. Those of you that sign up for meal trains to take meals to people that are in need, when you do that, when you make a meal or buy a meal like I do, um, or you know, go get a pizza and take it over there, you are speaking the, the voice of God that says, I love you, that I care for you, that you're not alone. When you take a meal to someone, you are saying, you are, God is saying you're not alone. God is speaking through you, through your act of service, by serving someone. God is using you to speak into their lives that they matter, that, that they're valuable, that God loves them through your act of service. Another way that God speaks through the church is through words of affirmation and instruction. Have you ever been in a church service where you left and you're on the way home and you're talking to the person next to you and you're like, man, it was like Joe was just looking at me the whole time and just talking right to me, right? Have you ever felt that way? Like that, that message was like, you know, and you're kind of like in your chair and it's like, no, I'm like looking around this whole time. But like it feels like because the weightiness um, of what is being said and the conviction and the spirit moving in your heart, all of a sudden it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's causing and prompting you to act and react to what's being said. And that's God's spirit. But God uses that to speak to you. He also uses words of affirmation. I'll tell you what, you never know what, what someone's going through. There, there are so many of you, it, your stories 
You have a story, and no one knows what you're going through but you. And so when you come here and someone says, uh, welcomes you, so I'm glad you're here. It's so good to see you. You have no idea what that word can mean to someone who has felt alone and distant and by themselves. Just by you saying, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. It matters. It matters. That's why I fight so hard to be out there and be annoyingly positive to you when you walk in the door. Because I want you to know you, you matter. And I'm so glad that you're here. And no matter what you're bringing in, the garbage of life that sometimes can weigh on us, you can know that this is a place where you can go and just be. Just be. We're glad you're here. Glad you're here. Words of affirmation, instruction. Another way that God speaks to us um, is through example. Through example. There have been plenty of people in my life that have been an example to me. Uh, people like Ron and Tammy Colbert, who have been a part of my journey of Christianity since the very beginning. And why they're still hanging out with me, I don't know. But they, they have been amazing mentors in my life. Examples of what it means to follow Jesus with everything you have. In the midst of the chaos and the, and the wildness of life, to remain steady and faithful to God. That has been an example to me. One of the greatest examples of my entire life is my own wife. Jane has been one of the greatest examples of what it means to be Christ-like than anyone I have ever met. And I am forever changed because of her example in my life. People, God sends people to be examples. And that's why God can speak to you is through the examples that, that, that people are setting that you can watch. If you don't have someone in your life that, that, that's walking alongside you, that's why we have home groups. Get it connected to a home group where you can get connected into a relationship where people can walk alongside you through all the highs and all the lows and they can be people that are helping mentor you. If you're a young couple and you're newly married, you need to be in a group with established older couples. Not because they're perfect or they got figured out, but they can walk alongside you. They can at least empathize and understand maybe what you're going through as a young couple trying to figure out what it means to be married, right? Groups being connected in relationship. These are all ways to have examples in our lives to, for God to speak to us. Okay? So God speaks to us through people, through the church. And here's, here's an interesting uh, question is, how are we to discern it? Okay, Because that's inevitably the next thing. If God is speaking through people, how do I then discern whether or not that thing is, you know, what, how do I discern the voice of God? How do I know it's him? There's a few principles I want to pull out, and it comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul writes this letter to a church. At the end of the letter, he uh, begins to map out ways that he wants this new community to exist and to work alongside each other. And so in this um, that he writes, there's some principles that we can pull out of it. And I want to read it to you, and then we're going to break it down. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live, live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Have you had anybody come warn you? Hey, you're being a little lazy. I don't know. How would that go over, right? Like, hmm, like, hmm, tell me I'm lazy. Um, but warn those who are lazy. Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. Oh, man, shouldn't that... 
Be patient with everyone. That's a hard one for me sometimes. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. What do we see in a passage like this? There are a few things that, that pop out as it sits up on the screen. Um, there are a few things here. Um, for instance, verse, uh, verse 12, uh, we should be seeking counsel from spiritual leaders. If you want to hear God's voice and you're trying to discern God's voice, you should seek out spiritual leaders, right? And again, given that, yeah, I know that there's abuse, but, but let's assume for a minute that God actually still uses this, that there are people that care about you and love you. There are people like Justin, there are people like Jenny, myself, that we're here for you. We would love to meet. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to help you along and give perspective when maybe you're, you're stuck in one point perspective and you need someone to help you see a different perspective. Find, find a spiritual leader and, and discuss it with them. Uh, verse 14, seek counsel from trusted peers, that God has put us all as a body together, and so we should be helping each other along. And so if you have, and the key word there is trusted, trusted, right? People that you're in relationship with, okay? Um, seek counsel for them. Ask them. They know you. You know them. There's a relationship there. You can say, hey, help me see what I'm not seeing. How is it that, you know, I, I'm trying to understand what the next step is, what God may be doing. Can you help me with that? So we should seek out each other in relationship. Home groups are a great place to do that. You should be spending time in prayer, verse 17, right? This is the no-brainer, but sometimes it's often overlooked. There have been times in my life that I've gone through things, and then I, like, a week later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't even prayed about this. I've just worried about it. I've just tried to make, I've tried to be like Jacob and I just try to deal with it instead of even taking it to God. And so you want to hear God's voice, you got to take it to prayer. Verse 17, pray always, it says, never stop praying. And then lastly, use wisdom in your judgment. And we get this from verse 21. Your, some of your translations might say test. Um, other translations say examine. And I think that's a better translation, examine, because test kind of invokes this idea of like, you know, putting something out there and like measuring it, whatever. But, but really the word there is just to, just to examine, that, that we should use wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. When you have knowledge and you, you're going to make a, a decision, you have the information and wisdom is knowing what decision to make in light of the knowledge that you have. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So we should exercise wisdom when we're trying to discern God's will. Uh, for instance, does this fit in God's character? What, what I believe he's asking me to do. Is this, does this fit in, in the qualities? Of, do we see this um, in, 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 in teachings in Scripture? And, and so we exercise wisdom, right? We are to think. As, as Christians, you should be thinking, right? You should be taking what I'm saying and thinking and measuring and weighing it and going, Is Joe, was Joe right about that? Well, that was a weird story that he talked about with Jacob. Is that how it really went? Maybe I should go back and read, you know, chapter 25 through 35 and figure out if that was true. And, and, and you know, like you— don't turn off your brain when you come to church, okay? Use your head. Think. Use wisdom, right? God can speak through these ways. So when we're trying to discern, we seek counsel with spiritual leaders, uh, trusted peers, we spend time in prayer, and we use wisdom when we're trying to figure this out. Lastly, I want to bring up this, and I've been moving very quickly because I really want to hit on this point. What happens when God is silent? We're talking about God speaks, and many of you would probably say, but God's more silent than he is someone who speaks in my life. Okay? So when we approach a subject like what happens when God is silent in our lives, we have to consider something. 
okay? We have to consider the fact that God speaks in various ways. He speaks through, we learned this, we, he speaks through the Bible, he speaks through prayer, he speaks through circumstances in our lives, and he speaks through other people. We can't confuse the silence of God with, with him not talking when he's already spoken in these other areas. Meaning that, like, when we go, oh, God is silent. No, it's actually you just don't want to do what the Bible says. Well, I, I'm praying. I'm trying to hear from God. Well, no, actually, he said this over here. You just don't want to listen. Okay? We can't confuse the two. God speaks. And sometimes we're just stubborn, and we don't want to listen. So then we get mad at God. God, you're not speaking. And it's like, God, I wonder if God's like, well, no, I have. <laughs> like, I have been. You just don't want to see it. You don't want to listen. And so I'm not going to do something different just to appease whatever you want. I'm, no, I, my word says this. Or, you know, no, I, I spoke in this way, right? And so we, we, can't, we can't confuse the two. But there are times that if those previous ways that we would expect God to speak and he hasn't, and, and, and we've, we've considered those things, we're not ignoring it, we're not trying to do something different, but we're, we're truly living out what does God want and he's silent, because that does happen. What do we do in those scenarios? God is truly and genuinely silent in your life. There's two things I'd ask you to consider when God is silent. Timing and trust. How does this work? We find an example of this in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 10, we get a story about um, his best friend is really sick, Lazarus. And uh, so his sisters, Mary and Martha, write a letter to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, uh, we need you to come quickly because Lazarus is about to die. And if you don't get here soon, he's going to die. And that's no good. Um, and, and so just get here, right? They send a letter to him, get here. And we read in the story, what's interesting is we read in the story that Jesus gets the letter has a conversation with his disciples, but then we're told he chooses to stay where he's at for two full days. His close friend is on his deathbed. The sisters, who are also his close friends, are writing, please come and heal him before he dies. And what does Jesus do? He hangs out where he's at for two days. Now, he could have wrote a letter to Mary and Martha going, hey, heads up, I'm just going to stay. I got some things I got to wrap up over here. Then I'll get over here, and then I'll take care of it, and don't worry about it. Oh, and if he dies, like, I can fix that too. So don't, don't stress. I'll get there when I can get there. He could have done that, but he didn't. Can you imagine Mary and Martha? They're just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. No word, no response, no engagement, waiting. God, is, is Jesus is going to come. What's going on? What's going on? And then boom, he dies. And then Jesus shows up, and they're livid. They're ticked. They go out and they accuse Jesus. If you'd only gotten here sooner, he'd be alive. Be alive. But the thing that they didn't realize, and the thing that we often miss, is that God's timing is perfect, and he is never late. God's timing is perfect, and he's never late. He wasn't late. He had a timing that was all his own. And they didn't see it, and they didn't understand it, and they were worried, and they accused God, and they were frustrated at Jesus, and, 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 and all the things that we feel. God's timing is perfect, and he is never late. Never late. Will we trust that? Because the next reality we have to grapple with when God's silent is we have to trust him. We have to trust him. One of the most prolific writers in the Bible is a guy named David. 
And David had some traumatic things happen to him. This dude went through some things. He's seen some things, even to the point where he is being hunted for his life because he was anointed king. And so now he's being hunted down. He's living in the wilderness trying to survive. And he, and he writes some of the most prolific writing songs and, and, and poems that we get in our an entire Bible. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And in Psalm chapter 13, we get this writing that just... I think says it all when it comes to God being silent in our life. In Psalm chapter 13, he starts out by saying this. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? You kind of hear like the kind of attitude David's kind of throwing here, right? He's like, how long are you going to forget me? Every day, you know, like what's going, like he's getting, there's a, there's a, there's a tension there that we feel as he's writing this. How long will I wrestle with anguish in my soul? What is he talking about here? He's talking about depression, like real legit depression. How long, God, will I have to wrestle with this depression in my soul? How long? How long will you turn your face from me? How long will you forget me? I mean, this is real, authentic, transparent vocalization to God. But the beautiful thing about this is David doesn't stop there. He is, he is pouring his heart out. But that's not how the story ends. That's not how the psalm ends. Because you get to verse 5. And he says this, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. There's three things, three rhythms in this ending here that's so, so deeply profound. He says, the problem hasn't gone away. We have no indication in the psalm that it's been fixed by God. He just goes, I'm just going to trust. I, I believe you love me. That's the verse. He chooses, but, God, how long are you going to forget me? But, I'm going to trust that you love me. And because you've rescued me. That's not a statement of a present reality. That is a statement of the past. He is a making a statement, an observation that he can look back in his past and go, I know you've rescued me in the past. I'm going to trust you because you love me, and I know in the past you've rescued me. What is he doing? He's talking about those spiritual markers, the things that we talk about. Journal those moments in your life so that you, when you're in the deep despair of sorrow and, and depression and hardship, you can look back and you can go, but I remember God. I remember you did this for me. So I'm going to trust to trust. And lastly, he chooses an action. He, he makes a decision, he remembers his past, and he chooses an action forward. And his action forward is to worship God. I will choose, I will sing to the Lord. We have no indication that it's fixed. This is, there's nothing here that says, and God, everything's good, and we're great now, so now I'm going to worship you. In the midst of the 
depth of despair, I will worship the Lord. Listen, you have come here today and no doubt many of you are in the depths of despair and you're sitting through worship and you're like, I don't want to worship. I don't want to sing because I don't even believe the words that are on the screen. I don't even think they're real. I don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't acknowledge it. I don't want to sing. That's precisely the time you lift your voice because it's in the power of worship that God begins to move through his spirit and it's like medicine to the soul. It's like medicine to your soul that's in anguish and hurting and broken. You begin to worship when you don't want to and God meets you right there and you realize you're in a room full of people that are really good at hiding their brokenness when they come to church but they are, we are. And I'm not alone when I worship. And I don't want to worship. I want to sing. But when I do, when I choose an action of worship, when you're at home and you feel alone and you feel abandoned and you're saying, God, how long will you forget me? Put on some worship music and just let it fill the room and fill the space. God's presence through worship. It's medicine to the soul. When God is silent, trust that his timing is perfect and he is never late. He has perfect timing. He's never late. And put your trust by remembering the past and taking an action forward in worship. And wait wait. That's the hardest part of all, isn't it? And wait. Because he will speak. Because we believe the realities. God is always at work. He loves us, wants a relationship with us. He wants to partner with us, which means he's going to speak to us. As we wrap up, there's a few things I, I want us to consider as we as we come to a close this morning. And I Apologize for the lateness of the hour, but um, just a few things I want us to, to, to work through. Um, number one, God is always at work. Do you trust that? Like I said at the beginning, if, if this reality isn't true for you, you don't believe it, everything that I just said, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to take in. We've got to start with, okay, God, I will, I will recognize you are at work. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know how, whatever but I trust that. I trust you at work. With your circumstances and desiring for God to speak, ask for God's perspective when going through circumstances in your life. Trust him for the rest and remember your previous markers in your life that will encourage you in the present. Reflecting back on previous spiritual markers where God did something in you will help you in the present as you try to move forward. God sends people in our lives to speak to us. Be willing to listen and exercise wisdom as you do. Lastly, God's silence is not indifference. Trust his timing. Trust his love. Trust his goodness. As we go to communion, I want to spend a moment um, sitting in this 
sitting in this. If you came here this morning, you want to take communion, but you didn't grab any communion on your way in, our ushers are going to move their way back. And as they move their way back, just lift your hand and get their attention, and they'll, they'll make sure you get some. Um, but we're going to go to communion, and, and like we do, we're going to take a moment and sit in this reality. Sit in this moment. Because God is at work. His spirit is here. He's moving. He's convicting. He's leading. He's shaping. He's directing us. And so we need to sit and listen and respond. And so I want to give us a moment to respond, and then I'll come up and I'll lead us through communion together. But let's ponder and think and let God speak to us.